0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: It is budget day in Ottawa, where my next guest is stationed right now. Ian Lee is an associate professor of management at Carleton University, the Sprout School of Business. We always like going to Ian whenever we have a budget, and boy, two of them in the span of a few days. So We get to talk to Ian twice in the span of a week. Ian, how are you tonight?
0: Um, doing okay, <clears throat> um, although very disappointed, to be quite frank, with well, the um, federal budget today. Why? I'm going to go big picture. You know, they throw out lots of little, you know, goodie points that will make people happy. And, you know, it's like a magician's trick. And I use this. I really mean this on, without being unkind. When you want to do something and, and you don't think it's going to be popular, you try and distract people's attention to something else. So you throw out things to get them to focus on the things you're doing, like the so-called grocery um, assistance to, uh, to, uh, to ensure that people don't focus on what you're really doing, on the big stuff. What they're doing is there was no plan for growth. They're uh, very significantly expanding the deficit. And people are going to say, well, so what? You know, it's you know tough times. We're going into a brave new world for the next 50 years, long after I'm gone, long after I am dead, after the boomers are dead, long after these costs where our economy is slowing down permanently because of aging, the productivity is slowing down. The, clear, the data is very clear from people that study this. And we're running up. We've doubled the deficit in the space of four years. And this is going to fall on whom? On me? No, I'll be gone. So people out there listening, it's not going to fall on the older boomers. It won't fall on the younger boomers. They'll be gone. It's going to fall on whom? On young people and middle pe- people in their middle years. And, and so this is going to not generate growth. It's not going to increase our prosperity in the years going forward. In fact, all of the things they did in that today or all, but quite a few of the things they did, I think, are going to slow down and harm our, our future prosperity. It, they'll be, some of them will be politically popular for sure. But they, they missed, you know, they missed an opportunity there. They could have said, let me give you an example for those who are thinking I'm saying that we should, they should have done nothing. They could have announced all those spending initiatives today. They could have. They did. They did. And they could have said, okay, people, four years ago in 2020, we were spending $300 billion, the government of Canada. And over the last three, four years, from then till now, we've gone to $400 billion. That's a gargantuan increase lots of extra money being spent. So, we're going to announce yet more new spending. So, what we're going to do is we're going to fund it by taking it out of existing spending out of that existing base of 400 billion. In other words, if you want the technical term, you're you're neutralizing it. You're 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 not adding to the deficit, you're not increasing the deficit. Yeah, you're, you're not redirecting the national debt. So, if you're going to spend 50 billion more, then you take you reduce spending in some other part of right. the federal government budget by the, the same amount it's called crystallizing by the way and so it would have the impact where you can say i want to do all these new things in canada you know car, uh, you know decarbonization and and so forth and you don't make the situation worse by increasing the deficit they could have done that very simple matter matter and uh, decision and said, look, we've got all kinds of ideas, we've got all kinds of things we're going to spend the money on, and we will fund it with money from past budgets, uh, past expenditures. They will argue, oh my goodness, we had to spend this money, and they're going to make the argument that we had to do this, and again, it's a magician's trick. You don't talk about the funding, you say, well, look, we had to do this, don't you understand? And people say, oh, yes, yes, I understand. Yes, we needed to help people that need help, and we need to deal with the decarbonization. But that's not the debate. That's not the issue. Nobody is saying that they should never have done that. What I'm saying is that they should have funded it using existing spending. In other words, you, you, you eliminate some spending in some areas because not all spending is good forever. Programs have a lifespan just like people do, just like cars do. They wear out. We don't have programs on the books that were put on the books in 1867 or in 1910 because people understand times change, circumstances change, programs that were necessary then are no longer necessary at a later point in time. So they could have gone through and done what Jean Cretien did in the mid 90s. It's called program review and said, let's identify those programs that are no longer working. We're not getting bang for buck. So we're going to use those programs and them and use that money to fund new programs, new initiatives, and thereby not uh, drag down the economy with increased deficit. That's what they could have done. That's very big picture, and that's my biggest criticism of what they did today.
1: One of the big questions, and we talked about this just before you came on the air, that I'm puzzled by, and I'm not an economist, that's why we have you on, is for the last number of years I've been listening to people like you and Marvin Ryder and others that we have on here with some regularity saying inflation in large part is caused by putting more and more and more money into the economy. So here we have the Liberals saying we are wanting to help people battle inflation and what they're doing is doing this by putting more money into the economy. This, uh, Unless I'm misunderstanding, this seems counterintuitive. This seems like it's defeating the very thing it says it's trying to do.
0: Precisely. I mean, that's a, that's, I, I'm not against deficits for some ideological purity saying, oh, they're bad. You know, going into debt is not bad. I have a mortgage. Many could, I don't know, I don't know anybody, there may be some, I don't know anybody that bought their house with cash. In my life, I just know ordinary people and they borrow uh, their, to buy their car and their, their mortgage. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not the issue. This is not about, oh, well, you've got to only pay with cash and never go into debt. I'm not some kind of an ideological purist. Debt can be useful when you're funding a long-term asset that's going to generate longer-term growth to the, to the society. And that argument has been around in economics for 300 years. That's been known since Adam Smith. Nobel Prizes have been awarded in that. What the government was doing uh, is that a lot of this spending is consumption. And I think everybody understands the distinction between borrowing to buy a house and borrowing to buy your groceries or to going out to a bar and borrowing. Have, a, to have fun You know, I, when I was a bank loan manager, I was nine years in banking, I used to say to my customers all the time, they say, "Well, you know, is it all right to borrow?" I said, "Listen, if you're borrowing for a long-term asset like a house or something like that that's going to generate a return over time, that, that's good. That's good investment, that's good indebtedness. But borrowing to go on a holiday, or borrowing to go to the bar. Or going to do entertainment, you know, you should be you should be funding that out of cash flow and not going into debt to borrow it because once you've consumed it, it's gone. You go to the rock concert or the restaurant, you consume it, and it's all gone, but you still owe the money on the debt. And so what the government is doing is they're going into debt to fund consumption as opposed to investment called infrastructure. And so they could have done that. And and again, I'm not I'm not trying to suggest that they should not have announced spending for the, the greening of the economy. I fully understand that. I'm not even suggesting that they should not have said we're going to have some targeted assistance. No problem there. Governments' uh, budgets are all about making choices. What I'm saying is they should not, in this, uh, have gone taken as much deeper into debt. They've doubled the debt in the last four years. And this is falling on the shoulders of young people. And And they'll be paying this for years and years and years to
1: come. And that's the thing that I'm glad you brought that up because that's the thing to me that always gets lost here is we hear oftentimes young people say, well, this is good at spending because I need help. And I always think, yes, but who do you think is going to get straddled, saddled with this later on? Exactly. It's going to be you that's going to get hit with this when, I mean, I, I read somewhere today, and, and one of the many stories about the budget, I can't remember who brought this up, that I think the number with the, incre- with the increases in interest rates right now, it's costing the government an additional, I think it is 8 billion a year. Yeah in just covering their interest payments. Uh, and that's just so far without anything else happening. That's eight $8 billion just flushed down the toilet.
0: We are rediscovering what Chrétien and Martin discovered in the 19, mid-90s. It got to the point where the interest on the debt was expe- snowballing. It was growing exponentially every year and it was crowding everything else out. So, and I know there's people who say, oh, don't worry about it. Interest rates are incredibly low. Christopher Freeland and the prime minister were saying that only three years ago. Go out and borrow, they're, they're unbelievably low and they're going to stay low forever or at least for uh-huh. a very long yeah. time. That well, no, they aren't and they didn't. didn't they didn't last. and they aren't. And so we're putting spending more and more money on interest on the debt. So that's a very real expense. But to the point, I didn't finish answering your question about the inflation. You know any form of deficit, here's the a third argument, I guess of why deficits are not a good thing at a time of high inflation. Any deficit, it doesn't matter how justified. It doesn't matter how many good reasons you have for doing it, is inflationary because you are stimulating the economy when you when you go into deficit financing. It doesn't matter if you're going into deficit financing because of a war or because of inflation, or because of new technology. It doesn't matter. It's stimulative. It's the opposite of anything that slows down or cools the economy, such as an increase in interest rates or tax increases. Okay, That takes money out of the economy and cools it down. Anytime you run a deficit, no matter the reason, you are stimulating the economy. And so what we have right now is this bizarre situation in Ottawa where the Bank of Canada is cooling down the economy with interest rates which are taking money out of the economy okay that's with, with recession
1: we got to run but with a the recession they say coming up.
0: yeah and then on top of that you've got them stimulating and ca- contradicting what the Bank of Canada is doing. and so this this is not only doesn't make any sense but it's it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be helpful to the war on inflation. So what they're going to do, this is going to, at the edges, at the margins, make things worse, not better.
1: Ian Lee with the Sprout School of Business, Carl, as always, we appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: There are endless numbers of dark and bleary and you know, serious things going on in the world. We talk about them a lot. We talk everybody on in this business talks about them a lot, but there are also some things that are just more fun. And I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about one of those right now, because most people listening, maybe many people listening have been to Disney world before. Some of you have been to more than one Disney park. There are 12 of them around the world. How would you like to do all 12 in 12 days, doing every single ride in all the parts. I don't even know how that's possible, but my next guest just did that. Nathan Firesheets is his name. He joins me now. Nathan, how are you today?
2: I'm doing well. I'm, I'm still still—I'm still recovering a bit, and I'm still a bit tired. I would not,
1: well. I would not doubt that. So first of all, I mean, there's so many things here. I didn't even realize there were 12 Disney parks. I knew there were a bunch. I didn't even know there were 12. Where are they all?
2: Yeah, so there's two in Paris, one each in Shanghai and Hong Kong, then two in Tokyo, two in Anaheim, California, and then four in Orlando, Florida.
1: So you decide that you, now you obviously are a Disney guy, right? You've been going to Disney parks for a while. This is not brand new to you.
2: I mean, I I don't really consider myself like a Disney super fan. I'm more of a general theme park roller coaster enthusiast. Okay. Um, I really didn't start going to Disney very much until the last few years when I started doing these these ride challenges. I never grew up going to Disney. We went one time for a day when I was four. OK. Um, OK. You know? <laughs> all right. So somewhere <laughs> along the way, though, you come up with this idea that you're
1: going to get to all twelve. What what led you to the idea. I can do all 12 parks in 12 days because, again, these are not next door to each other.
2: Oh, no. So, well, first it was, okay, well, what, what vacation do I want to do for 2023? Where do I want to go? What do I want to see? And I was like, you know what, let me go visit the the Disney parks. Like, that'd be kind of cool. Like I've been to the ones in the States. Uh, I have visited the ones in Japan briefly before. It's like, okay, well, you know, let's, let's do this. Then what, what would it look like to, you know, maybe try to do this as one big trip? And then the dominoes just kind of started falling into place. And it was like, okay, this could be a thing. But there were still a bunch of travel restrictions. Like I was looking at this last summer and you couldn't go to China. You couldn't go to Japan. You certainly couldn't go between China and Japan. So I had to wait until all those travel restrictions finally lifted uh, just after the new year. And then I really was able to start planning in earnest.
1: You almost need to be uh, a military operations person to be able, I would think, to figure out the timing of this, to make the flights, to get to the place. I, how, how do you put it all together, first of all?
2: Lots of spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Uh, I've I've been telling people this, you know, you think this is a Disney trip. No, 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 no. This is equal parts, uh, travel logistics, physical endurance, and Disney stuff. Um, it it really is that big of a logistical puzzle and just a physical challenge.
1: Yeah, no, I would think so because you, you would have to then sleep on the flights, right? That, I mean, there's that's the only time you could sleep.
2: Well, so yeah, there were, there were some overnight flights. I did have plenty of overnights in hotels, but realistically, you know, once you're dealing with getting in and out of the airports, getting in and out of the parks, uh, dumping footage off of, you know, all my cameras, getting everything charged, all that, I, I was averaging maybe four to six hours of sleep a night.
1: But here's the thing. So it's it would be, well, not easy. It would be easier to do this if the idea was, I'm going to go to all 12 Disney parks and just sort of set foot in there just to say, oh, I arrived, I, you know, I, I came in, and here's my ticket, I can prove it. But you also said you're going to do every single operating ride in all the parks, which is its own problem for two reasons. One, because that's an awful lot to do. And two, anyone who's been to Disney knows it's almost impossible just on one day to get to all the rides
2: well then that's where you know doing these challenges for the last few years has really prepared me because there's a whole community of people that strategize and optimize how to do everything at a disney resort in a day uh like all, all four parks at disney world every ride in a day like there are there's a whole community of people that have have done that. Uh, It's very difficult. It requires precise conditions and a lot of strategizing and things have to go your way, but it is possible and it has been done even as recently as within the last month, somebody did that. Um, But
1: but anyone who's been there knows that you're going to get to a spot where there is a ride that has an hour and a half wait or a two hour wait, which would screw everything up, wouldn't it?
2: So the challenge for those is you want to, to target those kinds of rides. Yeah, you know, very first thing in the morning or at the very end of the night when they they either have a minimal weight or when that weight, you know, won't necessarily hurt you. Like if you get in line for that right before the park closes, you know, you just that doesn't hurt you, you just have to stand in the line. But the bigger thing is being able to leverage the the line skip opportunities. You know, now instead of fast passes, we have the genie genie plus lightning lanes, uh, and leveraging those and knowing how to work that system. Uh, a lot of people, they just they take it at face value and they go, oh, well, you know, I can I can get a, you know, a big thunder mountain at 4 p.m. And they just they take that and that's all they do with it. And then they just sit around and twiddle their thumbs for six hours. When in reality, what you have to do is you have to sit there and you have to refresh and refresh and refresh. And then stuff will pop up You know, a lot of times within the next 10 or 20 minutes. You just have to be patient enough to to refresh it. Uh, for somebody else to drop theirs in a spot to open up and then you to be able to jump in and grab it. Most
1: people consider Disney World, I I would think all people consider Disney World a vacation and a vacation by its definition is supposed to be something that's kind of relaxing. This doesn't sound anything close to relaxing. Besides the travel logistics and spreadsheets, how much logistics and spreadsheets were there just to figure out what order to do everything in based on other people's and your study of this to make sure you could get through them all?
2: So if that wasn't too, too, too much, um, I kind of have this weird innate ability to visualize park and crab flows and come up with, with kind of a plan without having to do too, too much effort. Um, I can't explain it, but it just, it clicked <laughs> in my head. I'm an engineer and just these things just, I don't know, some things just click for me and that's one of them, but I did make some notes like, okay, prioritize these rides first because they don't have any line skips you know they don't have you know the genie plus or yeah you know, single rider line or anything like that yeah and they tend to get a big line but beyond that it's just you have to kind of you you're going to get stuck waiting in lines the challenge is you want to make sure that you are maximizing the time that you have to get through everything else before you have to wait in those lines because if you get stuck waiting in a 30 minute line the very first thing in the morning your opportunity cost is just so high because there's so much else that you could walk right on that yeah. first half of the day. So it's recognizing that, hey, yes, that 30 minute line for that ride might be shorter than the 45 minutes or an hour that I might have to wait for that later. But I could get on five other rides while I'm dealing with that ride. And those are going to be 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes later. And that times five adds up to a much, much bigger number.
1: No, knowing what your plan was and what the target was here and what the goal was to do all the operating rides in twelve days in the twelve parks. Did it become stressful though? When there was a bit of a wait, do you start looking at your watch? Going, I, I, I'm going to fall behind. I got to get this. I got to get this. Was it? Yeah, was it the, totally there, stressful?
2: There were there were definitely some stressful moments where it felt like okay, the math just isn't going to work. Uh, when I was at Disneyland, um, because of the, the timing of the flights, I didn't show up to Disneyland until the early afternoon. And I had to clear the entire park by the end of the night at midnight. Which was
1: how many rides at Disneyland? Uh,
2: 34, 35, oh, mid 30s. Um, oh. and, and so, you know, I had to save Fantasyland for last because normally that's it, first thing in the morning you would hit Fantasyland when all those rides are walk-ons. Um, but I had to save that for the end of the night and hope that the park cleared out and the park just wasn't clearing out. Um, you know, the fireworks were done and it was, you know, 9, 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And these these lines were still 20, 30 minutes. And I needed them to be five minutes. And then just all of a sudden, 1130 hit and everybody just left. And I was able to just go bang, bang, bang through the last several that I didn't think I was going to be able to do. So the
1: one thing and we got to run here, the one thing that I noticed in some pictures, uh, you did have something, a note on your backpack that was explaining what your target was, what you what you were working on here. The 12 in 12. Did anybody ever see that and say, oh, Nathan, just come on, go ahead, skip ahead of me. I want to make this work for you. Or did you have to legitimately wait with everybody?
2: So I, I had to wait in all the normal lines. But the crazy thing about that sign is that was only on my backpack my very first day. Oh. It rained that day, and that got ruined. the <laughs> so The person, the person who who took that picture, was in line behind me to wait waiting to get in the park that morning. They never said anything to me. They messaged that picture to their sister, and their sister tweeted it, and that tweet went viral.
1: Yeah, no, your uh, people can read about Nathan. the the There are. Um, there are roughly 42,000 stories about Nathan online, everybody, because this is just, again, it's such a dark, where well, there's so many bad things going on right now. It's just fun to have a, a story about something that is not really serious. It was serious to you. I get it, but not, you know, in the grand scheme of the world, all that serious. And it's just kind of a fun thing. Uh, and Nathan, listen, this is 42,001. So I listen, I, I appreciate you taking a few minutes today.
2: Thanks for doing this. No, it's my pleasure. And if I can, I just want to shout out that the really the the best thing about this whole thing was the cast members. They really make the magic happen. And it was so fantastic to meet all of the all of the great the great people that work at Disney uh, day in and day out, making the magic happen for everybody that visits. So big shout out to all of them. That is uh, Nathan Firesheets. Thanks for doing this. Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: And I should have asked, uh, just before we go, well, he's gone, but I, when we had talked before he came on, um, $12,000 was the price to do that for him. And if you wanted to, Disney now has a, you could do something similar. Well, they will do it for you. Flying around all 12 parks in a Disney charter flight. And you'll stop at things like the pyramids of Giza and the Taj Mahal. Um, $102,000 per person, US, if you want to do it. So he did it the cheaper way by like a 10th.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: We don't often on this show, we don't often talk about soap operas and we don't often talk about feuding celebrities, but there's two, those two things are coming together in a really, a really fun and interesting online feud right now. So Eva Longoria, you probably know Eva Longoria. She was in Desperate Housewives and she's been in a bunch of other things. She was on a show a little while ago within the last week or so, a talk show. And she said this, and this is her quote, When I got young and the restless, it didn't pay enough for me to live off being an actor. So I continued being a headhunter and young and doing young and the restless. And I would hide the fact I was on young and the restless to my clients because they didn't want like a dumb actress handling their accounts. Well... Let it be said that uh, Eric Braden, who you probably know as Victor Newman, Victor Newman from Young and the Restless, Um, that's my very bad Victor Newman impression, Uh, Victor Newman did not take kindly to soap opera actors being disparaged this way. Went on Twitter and said, and I won't do it in my Victor Newman voice, uh, Eva Longoria, you just made derogatory remarks about daytime actors. You simply weren't good enough to survive the pressures of this medium. You were very lucky to get on that, quote, housewife show. You did one show in eight to 12 days with mediocre but salacious dialogue. Our actresses would run rings around you, and they did then. From Robert De Niro to whoever they all are, many of them started in the medium you denigrate. It shows a complete lack of class. Well, I know someone from around here, he's a Hamilton guy who can speak to this. Because not only has he played Dante on General Hospital since 2009, which by the way, according to Internet Movie Database, that is 1,324 episodes. But his family is probably the first family of acting in this city his name is Dominic Zampronia, who joins me now. Dom, how are you? Scott,
3: it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, I'm thrilled to have you on. Now, you're in L.A. right now, right? You're, still, you're working today.
3: I'm in L.A. I was working today. I'm, I'm done for the day, and uh, I, I had no idea that this drama was going on, man. You, you just educated me <laughs> exactly. on uh, what's happening in, in, my, in my peers' lives. Well, I—I
1: I mean, I'm wondering when you hear this stuff. Like, you, this is a medium, and—and and the reason I want to talk about it is because I think probably this is not. She's not the only one who has made comments that you know what soap opera stars are. You know, it's it's whatever. And—and and I got to believe those of you who are working in this line of work d- wouldn't take kindly to being suggested that the acting is not as solid as other places.
3: No, I mean I know firsthand the acting is just as solid as other places. Actually perfect example for you is uh and by the way like what you were saying eric said i agree wholeheartedly like a lot of people can't actually handle the amount of material and, and the, just the sheer volume of of work that we do in a day and it becomes overwhelming and they usually don't last but um it takes a muscle right it's a muscle that you don't know that you have until you actually have to exercise it and uh when i started here in 2009 I was like everybody else, like green in this area. I'd done other things. And then I came here and I was like, wow, we're doing like 50 pages, 60 pages a day. And that's just my portion of the day. Like hmm. there's actually more to be shot after that. And I, I mean, when we spoke last time, I was like, I was considered us the blue collar, you know, element of the film industry, you know, uh, from the crew cast, everybody on down. It's just, it's just a working, no frills kind of, churn it out environment. Um, But we have a lot of fun and you can't, you can't make it if you don't know your stuff and, uh, and you, you really don't last long if you, if you don't know your stuff and you don't have something to bring to the table as far as your ability. And it's hard to speak on it without sounding like you're tooting your own horn, but um, it's not easy, you know, in this, in, in, in in this uh, medium, Uh, nothing is, But as a perfect example, I went and did an an episode of NCIS LA last summer, and I'm sitting there with Chris O'Donnell and Eric Christian Olsen, who are two really awesome dudes. And they said in between takes, they're like, man, you were killing this. And I was like, thank you. And they said, this is the toughest job in in Hollywood to come in here and do a, a three and a half page guest spot. And I was like, well, I appreciate it. You know, I've been doing this a long time. And they're like, what have you been doing? I said, well, General Hospital. They're like, oh, okay, that explains it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I so, have to think that, uh, honestly, I have to think, now, I've never been an actor, um, you know, th- doing you what I... You
3: should be, though. That impersonation of Eric was amazing.
1: Well, all you got to do is whisper and, and try and put breaks in the words about it. Anyway, I, thank you. Well, but that's very good. Um, but... The idea of doing a play is working every single day. So there's the grind of doing that. But it would seem that what you do is doing a play every day, except you have to learn all new dialogue every single day before you go on stage. It's it's an enormous amount.
3: It, it is. It can be overwhelming. But, it's, uh, you know, at the same time, to do eight pages a day is has its own challenges. When you have to do one scene for three or four hours straight, that's a different muscle you have to exercise right if you're going to do one scene for three or four hours that you have to make as organic as possible over the course of everybody's coverage you know you're doing a master shot you're doing medium close-ups you're doing close-ups um the, it's hard to keep that an organic like i did this the first time take every time on our show it's like you're doing a stage play it is like you're doing a stage play and you got to have an entire script memorized for that day, pretty much, because we do almost two episodes a day wow. of material. Wow. And, and if you're doing so, a
1: movie or a TV show, um, because there's so many cuts, you wouldn't necessarily have to learn the entire script. all at Well, you wouldn't have to have that all in your brain ready to go because you could learn a few lines and then review it between s- scenes. With yours, do you have to have the whole thing memorized when you show up each day?
3: No, nah, yeah. I mean, it depends on your comfort level. A lot of people do things differently. Um, my routine is I don't like having my script on set because we don't get a lot of rehearsal time. So if you are married to your script in your hand up until the take, you can't be free as an actor to make choices on the fly, to, you know, notice something on the set that you might want to pick up in a take and, and have like that kind of freedom that you want to creatively have. Because the one thing you lose in the whole thing is your creativity, because you're so bound by time and lighting and camera moves and everything's very uh technical. So whatever you can do to free yourself up as best you can to bring as much creativity back into the process, which is where it starts in the first place, which is kind of ironic. You know, like this is an art form, first and foremost. But by the time you get to the end of a day, it's like, well, what about this did I do that was fulfilling in an art making sense. And you got to find those beats throughout the day and the scenes. So whatever you have to do for your own person, for your own process is, is, you know, I know people who can go in there and do that with the script in their hand. Me personally, I cannot, but there are people who can.
1: All right, let me go through your day then because, uh, well, I mean, when I was working, when, when the Spectator building was open before COVID and everything else, we had more than a few times, uh, I guess the the newsroom, whatever, was perfect. We had a whole bunch of movies that were filmed in there, The Handmaid's Tale and, and this and that and the other, lots of, a million, I mean, Hallmark Christmas movies, uh, half of them apparently were sh- were shot in the Spectator newsroom. So we've yeah. watched with, you know, hundreds of people were scurrying around and doing this and, and probably most people listening. Have seen a shoot somewhere so they have an idea and it looks like an incredibly onerous slow-moving cumbersome process to film a movie I'm guessing it's very different for yours. so l- let's go through your day for a second when when do you get your script for the next day
3: usually get the script for the next day a week ahead so tomorrow if I was shooting tomorrow I would have got tomorrow's script last Wednesday for example um, but the problem is with that is you can't really look at tomorrow's script last Wednesday because you're looking at today's script last Tuesday. <laughs> you know right, I mean? right. Like yeah. So it, it kind of, it gets a little chock a block. But, um, when I first started, they gave me my first two weeks of scripts. And so I was like, this is great. I can go in there. I'm, I'm, I want to hit the ground running. I want to be the guy who goes up there completely prepared because I'm the new kid on the block. I want to show them my shit, my stuff. Sorry, I almost said a word I can't <laughs> say on the radio. Uh, but, uh, and, and, but you realize shortly thereafter, is you don't get that two-week buffer anymore. Um, you have to kind of cram it all in at night after work, or you got to do it on the weekends in spare time. Now, it does get easier because that muscle I was talking about before it does get stronger. It's like going to the gym and doing curls. Your biceps get bigger. You work this muscle, it gets better at remembering – the short-term stuff, um, don't ask me what happened a week ago on the show because I can't tell you, but um, I know what happened today and yesterday <laughs> because that's, you know, the most recent. But, um, yeah, so you get it a week in advance. You don't really look at it until probably a few days in advance, realistically, because you're shooting up until a few days before, which ends up being the weekend for like a, a Monday or a Tuesday, and then you uh, you go in and at any point, portion of the day, and instead of being there for like multiple hours per per scene, you're once we'll, we'll do we'll do we used to do five scenes in an hour. Wow! And and now we do. I think we do even more. I think we're up to seven or eight scenes in an hour, maybe. So, do
1: you get the chance to then say, "Ah, oh, you know, I didn't really like my take on that one. I want to do it again," or is it just no? You just make sure you get it right the first time.
3: Well, there's little things you can you can you can ruin a take if you're really not happy with how it's going. <laughs> you, you just you say, "All right, like, like enough of this. Like let's just let's just get a fresh run at this." But the element of the tightrope, I always liken it to a tightrope. Um, The the margin for error feels like that, you know, because you have you're doing a dance. You have you have four cameras in front of you on the stage in front of you where the audience would be, say, in a in a on a stage. And you have lights that are dropped down from light bars all around around you. And they're pointed in your general area. And they'll maybe bring someone in with a with another panel light to pop. You know so you have decent lighting and then you you go and uh they have they have people in the booth snapping to go camera one camera three camera two camera one camera four and that's the scene and and a lot of the times yeah could we do it better if we had another shot yes do you have to be okay with at the end of the day maybe feeling like your best work isn't going to end up on tv yes and that's kind of frustrating sometimes but it is the process you know otherwise you wouldn't we wouldn't get it done, and who knows where we'd be if we wouldn't be able to get those hundred pages of scripts done in a day.
1: Do, do you think it, when, when we go to this, oh, by the way, let me ask you this, just about the acting process, what do you call the thing? Because there is one thing that only soap opera actors do, and I don't know what you call it, but it's at the end of the scene, right, when they have to go to a commercial and there's, I, I'll call it the pause. You, you make it... Oh, your, it's called
3: a tag. It's a tag.
1: <laughs> that's the one the that's the one soap opera trick, right? You gotta, you gotta hold it, the spot
3: yeah it's not a it's not a fun thing. I was actually making fun of one of my uh my my friends on the show the other day because he hates the tag every time he's got to do a tag he does this weird thing with his eyes and, and it's very and so i've been, i've been busting him on that uh, like repeatedly um but I can only do that because I've been there too like there's there's so many days where you feel like you didn't do your best work when you're driving home. Yeah, but someone once told me, "You're never as good as you think you are, and you're never as bad as you think you are. Right. So you're somewhere in the middle." Usually, when it airs and you see it, it's like, "Ah, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be."
1: <laughs> but, but do you do you believe so going back to where this whole thing started from? Now, the, the interesting part about this is this is a an actress or an actor, whatever you want to call her now, um, mm-hmm. making a comment about another medium, another line of work, which is probably why Victor Newman, Eric Braden got upset about this. But uh, do you get the sense that the general public looks at soap opera actors as not the same as movie actors or sitcom actors or something? Do you do you think that there is a, um, uh, I don't know, an opinion that somehow it's less?
3: There's definitely a stigma, I think, that has always existed around soap opera acting. Um, I, I know it was based a lot on people's looks at one point, you know. I don't feel like it is that way anymore. I feel like there's so many actors and so many talented people around and there's so many people wanting gigs that the competition is just too fierce nowadays. Um, I think what, what did it for Soaps is they're on every day, right? Like this has affected, I think, everything down to the Oscars where, you know, we used to hang on the edge of our seats till we could see, you know, Tom Cruise or Schwarzenegger, or whoever your favorite actors are, get out of a limousine because you never saw them, never heard from them. There wasn't social media. They weren't, they weren't on TV every day. soap operas so on every day of the week. Um, what's funny is the fans are rabid. They are, you know, you walk in down the streets of New York and you got construction workers shouting my character's name. From scaffolding, that's, you, know, you, like,
1: you get you get Dante more than Dominic when you walk down the street.
3: Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean that's the difference too. A lot of fans come up to you and they call you a character name. They don't call you your actor name. They call you your character name <laughs> because that's how they know you, right? I mean they, they know we don't advertise a lot of our names and we don't we don't feature our names. Our names come up at the end, you know, with with our camera people and our casting people and our lighting guys and all that kind of stuff. We don't we don't really have a spotlight like you would at the beginning of a major movie or a series like an ncis you know what i mean it's uh it's a different beast but i think i think yeah there is an element of overexposure that that comes along with it that makes it maybe seem like a little more or a little less uh of a spectacle um than than the rest of the industry but but to me i kind of like it I like it that way. Really, why should people be celebrated for doing their work? Like it's, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of a funny, it's a funny thing, right, in society that we look at. I mean, award shows are hilarious. Like, like why are we awarding people for doing their job? Like, wow, I always and, find that.
1: And, and and so people know. I think they probably do. But you've been up for best actor, best supporting actor a number of times. I mean, you, you're you're really good at this. I I wonder if when we're talking about this. You know, you mentioned Chris O'Donnell on NCIS a while ago, and, and he said like, "Where have you been?" I I when you said that, I was like, "Well, how does he not know where you've been?" Do you think that being a soap opera actor has a negative connotation if you go and audition for a movie or for a TV show, and they say, "What have you been doing?" and you say, "I've been on a soap." Do you, does that help, or do they look at that with a, an eyebrow raised?
3: I think it depends on the per on on the casting person. Like, there's a lot of casting people that. You know, I'll go in and they'll be like, oh, by the way, I love you on GH. I'm like, oh, cool. Thank <laughs> That's you. That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, there's some people I went in one time and did an audition and the casting director said that was a little soapy. And I said, oh, really? Like, <laughs> I've never been called soapy in my life. I don't <laughs> even know what that means. Like, I'm I'm the most unsoapy actor in my uh, I can think of, you know, because I, 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 everything I play is true. But um You, you, that stuff's sort of out of your control, and you don't really. I know there's people that subscribe to that for sure. I know there's, there's actors in, in our business that are like, yeah, it takes a while once you get off the soap to, to get back, to get onto something else. I just think that's the nature of being an actor. I don't think there's any one job. You, you do any job for a long enough time, people are going to have a hard enough, harder time seeing you as something else. If, if you play like I've been a character, the same character for a really long time. If people watch that show for a long time, they're going to say, Oh, I might have a hard time seeing you as anything, but, and I think that's more what it probably comes down to. Cause it, it, there is an element of, of, of work these days that it, it, it's, what's the most bankable option, but I can tell you stories that I've heard a list actors that you would say, you gotta be kidding me when, they pitch a show and they say okay great but who else do you have? Well oh, i have this other a list actor. Okay great but who else do you have? Well i got this other a list actor. Okay great but who's running the show? Well maybe we get so and so's husband who's an oscar winning thing to run the show. Well we'll only give you the money if he signs on to direct every episode of the series. Like it is such a it is such a um, a fearful industry because no one wants to put something out that isn't going to get investors and studio money back. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So from that element, yeah, you could definitely say that. Like who, why would Chris O'Donnell know Dominic Zampronia? He wouldn't, you know, he doesn't watch soaps. I wouldn't know who Dominic Zampronia was if I wasn't Dominic Zampronia because I don't watch soaps either. But I don't watch NCIS either, Scott. So <laughs> <laughs> I only know... I not know, Chris, because the sense of a woman, and I thought it was a great movie. I um, thought you were
1: going to say Robin from Batman and Robin.
3: Oh, yeah, that's right. I yeah. That. That, that, <laughs> wasn't, that wasn't my favorite, Batman. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's all in the uh, – it, it's, it's a funny industry, and, yes, it definitely exists, what you're asking. Um, but I don't actually subscribe to it. So I think it, it depends on what you actually let penetrate your kind of bubble. You know
1: what I mean? Well, it's good It's good that Victor Newman has your back and is standing up for all of those of you in the industry. And, uh, and you know, I could say his name, Eric Braden, but, you know, funny thing, you, kind of what you touched on, I don't know that anybody, if I said Eric Braden, how many people would know who he is. You say Victor Newman, everybody knows who Victor Newman is. Everybody knows who Victor Newman is. That is uh, Dominic Zampronia. He is, by the way, the brother of Gemma Zampronia, who you probably know as an actress, the son of Lou Zampronia, who's Hamilton Gallery of Distinction member along with his mom. Um, listen, really appreciate you taking in a few minutes today to talk about this.
3: My pleasure, buddy. Thank you. I miss my hometown and uh, happy to be here with you. Well,
1: next time you're back, you'll have to pop in studio. We'll talk again. But really appreciate well, you doing this. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.